The Bite Goes On is up next, but first, check out this other great show on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. Destination Eat Drink. This week on the podcast, we're in India. I don't know exactly what they're called. Uh, the name is escaping me. I think it's, is it Gulab Jamun or something like that? She never told me. She just stuck the plate in front of me. <laughs> <laughs> For that and more dishes I can't remember the name of, download Destination Eat Drink today on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. The following is a presentation of the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. Hey, welcome to The Bike Goes On. This is Brian Casey with Sandra Bernstein. She is freezing. It's about 35 degrees out here. But it's you know what's nice is we're getting the swing. So we're getting the 30 deg uh, degree diurnal shift. At night, it's going down to 35. And then we get to 65 during the day. So, you know, it's. do you sleep better, Sandra, at night when it's cold? I normally I do, but I don't know. The last couple of days I've been, I'm so cold. I like being cold. I hate being hot, yeah. but I just, I'm walking still at like six 30 in the morning and it takes me a little to get back yeah. you know, warmed up. And yeah. unfortunately I have been, well, fortunately, unfortunately, I have been like being a plant buyer addict since i'm sheltered at home and so my uh, our listeners know we've <laughs> they know but so i haven't been turning my heat on that much because i don't want to kill the plants so oh, wow. trying to find that balance of not killing all the humidity and keeping it but yeah i have new babies everywhere i think i'm getting one today you've turned into the plant lady i am but i'm actually trying to like <laughs> understand how not to kill them Right. Which would be a good thing. I don't want yeah. to call them. Yeah. And, and any listeners out there, I know we've gotten some advice from um, the two ladies that have the seaweed company, Daybreak. And then we had some advice from Lydia from oh, Lydia's, Lydia. Lydia's yeah. Kitchen. So, yeah, if anyone else has advice, maybe email Sandra. Yeah. Yeah, yeah for sure. <laughs> but, you know, I'm excited today because Amy's been on our Amy Sherman, who is our guest today. Hi, Amy. Hello. <laughs> um, she's been on the list like way in the beginning. And finally, I was like, Amy, can you do this? And it was perfect timing. And I don't know, we've known each other for maybe 20 something years. Yeah. yeah. Um, IACP and San Francisco Food Professional, I think. And I think it's uh, when your book came out a million years ago. Oh, I, yeah, that could be the first one, 04. The first book, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Oh, my God. See, time flies. <laughs> and here we are, almost 2021. Yowza. But anyway, you, um, I'm excited to talk to you for a lot of different reasons. Um, one, you are such an amazing writer. Um, you know food inside and out. <laughs> and so, you know, for especially for our show, it's like perfect. But, you know, I think people listening, it doesn't, you can't get there overnight. So did you go to school deciding <laughs> that you were going to be either a cook and then turn or a chef and then turned into a writer or... You were in philosophy. How did you become a food writer? Well, I, I have to blame my family or credit my family, I guess. Um, my family, they're just a bunch of foodies. They're really into food. And I really actually have to um, also credit having grown up in Marin because um, the Bay Area in general has been food focused for a very, very long time, including back in the 70s and 80s when I was coming of age and growing up. Um, so, you know, you know, my dad knew Bruce Adels. He had Kermit Lynch over, you know, one day. I mean, we just sort of had a, a foodie circle of friends, even though no one was in the industry. My, my dad did... Um, fish, um, go out to the ocean and fish for salmon. Mm. My mom had a huge organic garden, um, I guess about a little over half an acre or so. Wow. Um, yeah. So she, and she's just, she just has an innate ability with plants. She grew up in New York, but, um, just really took to gardening and, um, is incredible in that regard. 
and just the access to, you know, we had chickens, we had backyard chickens. Mm -hmm. I think just having access to really high quality ingredients was something that kind of formed me. Then my parents had some friends who had a gourmet um, retail shop in downtown San Rafael. Um, it was called the Torn Ranch. And um, they sold the business and uh, it became wholesale only. But I worked in that retail shop and that was really my education because the philosophy was you need to know what everything tastes like. Someone could come in and ask, what is the difference between the California pistachios and the Iranian pistachios? And you need to be able to tell them. You need what's to be able difference? to ex explain that. So yeah, what now? I need to know what's the difference. <laughs> well, the Iranian pistachios weren't available for quite a long time due to <laughs> politics, but um, they do have a different flavor. They do have a different flavor profile, as as many ingredients do. So you know, we always you know when we packaged bulk food, we always tasted everything to know what it was supposed to taste like, to make sure that it was of good quality. Um, they didn't want you packaging some Turkish apricots only to find out that they were, they were no good. Right. Um, so you really, you re really got an education just by tasting everything. Um, and that kind of started me off. I, I went to college. I uh, had thought briefly about cooking school, but didn't pursue that. <clears throat> and then, um, you know, food was really just a hobby till I started my blog. And luck and timing the blog kind of got some attention um i i didn't really think of myself i guess as a writer until the blog and people said oh you're actually really good at writing um i just write the way i talk write the way very conversationally um and then i'm interested and curious so i do a lot of research um that led to a cookbook deal to writing for all different kinds of outlets and just amazing opportunities over the years and um I love cooking, but I would not want to be a chef. Um, I, I enjoy the balance of doing some cooking, some writing, um, some editing these days. It just, oh. there's so much in the food world to do other than just being a chef, as yeah. many chefs know too. <laughs> right, right, for sure. Well, when you said about, you said sort of a balance of luck and timing, what was it? Was there a certain article yeah. that you wrote that got some attention for a specific reason? Well, I started the blog, I was an early adopter for sure. Um, I started blogging in 2003 and that was before there was everyone and their mother had a blog. Um, there was actually a very small number of people that had food blogs, you could count them. Um, that's how small it was. And we all got to know each other. And you know the, that original group, it's, it's pretty amazing where people have gone uh, with their careers with something that was a hobby. None of us really in the beginning had any monetization. It wasn't about money. It was just about sharing our passion and enthusiasm for food. Um, so, so it was just, it was a good time. Um, Forbes used to do best of the web. And um, that year they chose to do best of the blogs because blogs were the new shiny object. So they had the celebrity blogs with, you know, at the time Moby and Barbara Streisand had blogs. <laughs> and then they had the food blogs and mine was one of the top food blogs. So that just kind of put me on the map. And it was also an acknowledgement that yeah, I'm a good writer because it's one thing when your your mother tells you you're a good writer or your husband, <laughs> they love you, you know, they're going to say that. But it's another when when Forbes says, you know, the editorial team says, you know, this is a good writer. So that was that gave me a lot of confidence um, to go out and, and take on other challenges in terms of writing beyond just the blog. So the blog was kind of a stepping stone, really. But it is how a lot of people know me. It, you know, there was a period of time where bloggers had, a, you know, as, as new as it was and another way to access information, I think there was like a stigma from people that considered themselves like a oh, yes. writer. Oh, yes. Yeah. And they're like, what is this blogger? Like, why can anybody be a blogger? Um, but that was... Was it near then, 2003, yes. four, yeah. five? Yeah. It was the early aughts. Uh -huh. um, it, it was quite a backlash. I mean, there was a lot of resentment. Um, I, I got a lot of attitude from people. Um, I went to my first ICP conference and I told someone that I had a blog and um, 
boy, she just lashed out at me, you know, like I was her <laughs> enemy, you know, like it's people like you that are ruining it for the rest of us. I mean, those words will just always be seared in my memory. You know, welcome to IACP. <laughs> yeah. Was that your first conference? That was my first conference. Uh -huh. And that was at like the newcomers reception. Uh -huh. I remember just going back to my hotel room going, did I make a huge mistake by coming here? You know, do uh -huh. I even want to be part of this? Uh -huh. But it's a very, you know, it's a very competitive field there's not a lot of money in it and um people get very um you know they get very sensitive to the thought that anyone is you know honing in on their space i mean i see it now too with a lot of the i mean anyone can cook right yes. <laughs> so every celebrity has got a cookbook uh, they've got a website they've got a whatever and there's again there's a lot of resentment um mm -hmm. Why shouldn't Chrissy Teigen, you know, have a cooking empire if she enjoys it and she loves it? Yeah. Um, but there are people who, you know, have a profession and they feel threatened and and just angry that anyone else would choose to ever share their passion of cooking, which is a yeah, shame. But, it, but it's also like some of the people I don't know about um, Chrissy Teigen specifically, but a lot of these celebrities need the actual real writer <laughs> well yes there's a whole industry of ghost writing for these people. yeah uh -huh. um and so um yeah some of that has come to light um but they partner with other people i i think um i, th I think it's fine i think it's fine again I, I i do know some writers who ghost writing and partnering on cookbooks is a huge part of their career so <laughs> Yes, there will always be room for people with professional skills. Mm -hmm. I am still very much an enthusiast and um, there are areas where I know a little bit more, but I'm by no means an expert in anything. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's an okay place to be. <laughs> well, first, how do you decide what to write about? So if you're, you know, because I'm, I'm imagining at the beginning, you don't have um, magazines reaching out to you saying, hey, we need a story on this or we need sure. a story on that so then how are you picking what you wanted to write about well it very much depends on what the outlet is so for my blog which i've maintained for you know these almost 30 years um it's just for fun you know it's just um or 20 years i guess i should say not 30 years um it's just for fun so it's whatever interests me and I like the immediacy of it. I don't have to wait for an editor. I just have a topic. I have something I'm excited about, something I want to share, and I just write about it. Um, I would never run out of things to write about. That is not a problem for me. Um, but then when you're writing for for different publications, they have different needs. And sometimes they ask you to come up with ideas, but a lot of times it's just, hey, this is what we need. So I used to read I used to write a lot of those listicles, you know, the 10 places to, you know, drink wine in Sonoma, the, you know, 15 places for pizza in Chicago. Now I'm doing a lot of what they call explainers. So I've been doing a lot of writing for Martha Stewart and for all recipes, and it's how to calibrate your oven and uh, why you need a griddle pan. <laughs> and, uh, you know, is caviar ever affordable? And just all those kinds of semantic, all those questions that people have on the internet, um, trying to answer those, which is enjoyable for me because I like getting to the bottom of these things and learning a little bit more. I'm just sort of naturally curious. Um, so it's, it's interesting to me to write those stories. Then for, um, the big news for me this year was taking over, taking on the role of editor-in-chief for The Cheese Professor, a website devoted to all things related to cheese. And from that, it was, it was build it from the ground up. I mean, I, I was the first editor. I had the site before it launched to form it, to reach out to writers, to come up with an editorial direction and figure out you know who we're going to be what we're going to do we're just about six months in so um a lot of big plans for next year i'm actually taking on a second website as editor-in-chief which is exciting um i think i'm not supposed to say anything about it until tomorrow but <laughs> until it's another, tomorrow well yeah, you can tell us because this won't go until okay. a week from friday oh great okay well the, the the other site is the sister site to the cheese professor the alcohol professor oh nice so I have a lot of contacts in the alcohol world and 
um, it'll be interesting. They, they, it's been a successful site. It, it's done really well up to now, but I think we're going to kind of refocus things a little bit and, and um, maybe take it in some slightly new directions. And it's exciting to be able to come up with ideas. I have a huge list of topics I want to cover. Um, both the very niche things um, and then the sort of broader topics and just assigning them and writing some of them myself. And um, that's just a very enjoyable, enjoyable experience. More enjoyable than somebody telling you to write a story about calibrating ovens, which is one of the more boring <laughs> topics ever. Yeah, that does not sound fun. What? How do you do Wait, when she right. says alcohol, I'm just curious when you say alcohol, you're, we're talking about spirits, wine, um, fermentation, like the whole thing? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Beer, okay. wine, spirits. We, um, we, ha we, the publisher runs a number of international competitions uh, for alcohol. So a wine competition, a, a whiskey competition, beer competition all over the world, Melbourne, Seoul, um, Berlin, the US, many, many places. So um, those competitions um, cover cider even, they have a cider competition. Um, they haven't done a sake um, competition, mm. but we do have some sake content as well on the site. So anything having to do with alcohol. And we have this position where we're both for the professional, the industry professional, as well as the enthusiast. Mm -hmm. Do you do you have a podcast? <laughs> no, not yet. Maybe someday. Yeah. Your voice. <laughs> no, you have your voice is really nice. Um, I could see that rolling out into some podcast episodes on both of those, really, which was kind but, of fun. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I know they've done some video in the past with the alcohol professor, mm -hmm. um, and are hoping to do some more of that. It's interesting because in the alcohol world. You have a lot of people with expertise who are not really great writers. Um, most bartenders are, they're great people, but the writing is not necessarily one of their strengths. Whereas in the cheese world, um, you have a lot of cheesemakers, cheesemongers who are incredible writers. Um, they've written books and I don't know whether it's just to kind of communicate cheese. They need to be able to articulate things in a way that um, you know, they have to write out descriptions for things, but they're really, really good writers. So um, it'll be interesting to see kind of who, who I end up with as contributors. It's well, been interesting think, on, the, on both sides, you know. You know, wine writers have a saying, it's um, write drunk, edit sober. <laughs> Where you're, you're sort of doing the initial right. thing while you're drinking and then, and then do the editing while you're sober to say, oh, you know what, that's, maybe we should clean that up a little bit. But I can imagine Kermit Lynch, is Kermit Lynch still alive? I don't know. <laughs> I know his son, I think his son runs the company. Okay. Yeah, I was thinking that would be a perfect um How do you determine like for the cheese professor, like how will you know whether or not it is successful? Like what are the measures that gauge that? <laughs> well, it's, that's an interesting question. Normally with uh, websites, it's all about the traffic. Um, you know, everyone is looking at the traffic and trying to grow the traffic. And I'm certainly looking at the traffic and want to grow it. But I have to say from a publishing standpoint, that is not the goal for my publisher. Um, he's more interested in two things. One is engagement. Are people engaged with the content? And the other is um, the reputation. You know, does this have a positive reputation? Um, and does it enhance um, the standing of the competitions that he does? Are people duly impressed, I guess, that they're willing to participate because they take, take it seriously? Um, so we're really just trying to create the best possible site that we can. Neither of the sites are monetized. They don't have affiliate links. They don't have ads, nothing like that. Um, I would like us to have bigger budgets for our writers. Um, so I'm open to different ideas, but uh, we'll see if our publisher, if the publisher ever is. Um, <laughs> he just really wants great content and, and to attract the right people. Um, the, the competition is really kind of his main focus and mm -hmm. he really hands over 
the editorial reigns a hundred percent to me to kind of take it in whatever direction I want. And, um, that's been a joy because it's very unusual. Usually publishers have some strong opinions about what they want. And uh -huh. um, no, it's, it's really nice. It's clean and really, really informative. And um, it's kind of refreshing not to see every ad everywhere. And, you know, you always wonder like when a story is filled with links, like how much money, you know, are people making, like, you know, trying to push you somewhere else. And, you know, as a consumer, I'm, I think, what would it be, a HDAD, whatever, like, where I would, like, go click on a thousand things, and then I forget where I started from, um, but so it's kind of nice when you have something that's just, like, solid, and the information, um, and boy, there's, you know, there's a lot of content, a lot of history on cheese, and certainly alcohol, so I don't think you'll ever run out. <laughs> of topics ever you know right yep well and you know the artisanal cheese industry is fairly young i mean oh yeah it hasn't really been that long that we've had artisanal cheese in the united states and there are regions of the country where there's a lot like where we are mm -hmm. um but there are other parts of the country that really don't have that much uh culture around cheese and it's just it's 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 growing Mm -hmm. Interestingly, um, and I don't know why we do have so many beautiful cheeses here, but I, early on in the pandemic, I ordered from Jasper Hill, I ordered a box of cheese, um, haven't had their cheese in a while. And I was like, oh my God, because at the same time, I haven't been eating a lot of cheese. So it'd be like, okay, I can have one little bite today, one little bite, one ounce, that's all I'm having. So um, the cheeses are absolutely stunning. I mean, if you haven't had their cheeses, people need to go taste them. They're amazing. Um, but I just yesterday found a piece of their blue basley, I think, blue basil or can't remember the name but yeah. it was like tucked in a back corner poorly wrapped shame on me and um it turned into what came as a really not soft but you know uh, medium soft you know like medium hard light hard um where you could spread it with a knife in the beginning but yesterday when I got it it was hard as a rock but that didn't stop me I cut off the edge got in there and it was so delicious I mean you know it's one of those things where you know looking at a blue cheese it's not like you're gonna go oh no it grow mold because <laughs> it started with mold so it was so good I'm like yeah it that was exciting but discoveries and you know, artisan cheese, and I, I mean, I guess like the artisan cheese before we know it now, um, you know, whether it was mass produced or some farmers that just had no idea how to get their product out there, you know, other than their neighborhood or, um, you know, their small community, I think there were probably those cheesemakers they just weren't brought to the forefront yeah that's really yeah. true i i was saying to someone that um if you think about monterey jack cheese i would say that what igvella did with um the dry jack that that was dry jack was an artisan cheese right right Before, um, it just it yeah. just wasn't called an artisan cheese at the exactly. time it wasn't identified yeah. as such um but you know the whole I guess the way the industry has really um, grown up, cheese was a commodity. Right. Um, it was a way to make money versus just selling liquid milk. Right. Um, it was a way to add value and to make money. And then over time, there has been, I think as the US, as we've sort of grown up as a food culture, we've gotten more interested in what we can do and how we can do better. Um, and you see a lot of, even those big commodity cheese producers in the Midwest aging their cheeses and creating a higher value and better cheeses and seeing that there's really a market for that. So, so it's exciting. It's exciting. You know, we're not France, <laughs> you right. know, we don't, we don't have that cheese culture that they have. Um, mm -hmm. 
but we, but it, it's definitely growing and the appreciation is growing and the understanding is growing, all of that. Yeah, it's been, it's also cool, you know, having Laura Chanel in, in our backyard, you know, one when, when she was still involved in it and before she sold it, but even now um, they sold it to a French company, I believe, because they, they all yeah. have accents, yeah. And um, <laughs> they, they couldn't be nicer, the people that are there. I mean, yeah. they've yeah. just been so lovely. They have their uh, factory, their Sonoma factory is right down the street from our pop-up space. So we've um, been able to go over and do stuff with them and they would drop off cheese. And then I was doing some stuff with them for Marin French. Um, and we love, I mean, we've been, we've had Laura Chanel Chev on our, the cooking chef on the menu since 1997. And um, it's just really lovely. I mean, and consistent. And, you know, I would say like, when do you decide that this artisanal cheese, because I do think maybe it was, um, you know, doesn't mean because it was smaller and because now it's like mass produced, does it lose its artisanal, um, you know, badge? Maybe, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's, just, it's just what we call it. Um, it's mm -hmm. just a word. Um, yeah. And then over time, it won't have as much meaning, but farmstead cheeses, mm -hmm. um, I think, Laura Chanel was one of the first, that was one of the first stories I wrote for the site actually when it uh -huh. launched, um, just a history because it's such an important brand and um, really introduced a lot of people to what cheese, what cheese could be. Mm -hmm. um, and you're right, it's interesting to have seen a number of the local companies um, sell to both um, French and Swiss, Swiss huge, yeah. huge, huge yeah. companies. But I think the reason that they've purchased the companies is an appreciation for what they're doing and a desire to really see that business grow as opposed to, you know, the heartbreak that we had when, when Hershey bought up all the, the brands in the Bay area and then just killed them, basically right. moved them out, right. killed them, you know, destroyed yeah. them for, for what good reason. I, I still don't really understand. Yeah. That was a shame, you know, was what Scharfenberger and yeah. a few others. Have you, do you do a lot of cheese judging now? <laughs> I did my first cheese judging. I had never done any cheese judging before. And I judged it, um, I've been involved judging the Good Food Awards for a number of years. Mm -hmm. um, I, maybe three or four years that I've, I've judged different categories. And they're not always looking, they look for a panel of people that are a combination of experts and non-experts. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't join as an expert just as a, enthusiast I guess mm -hmm. so this year they asked me to to do one and I said hey what about you know could I get on that cheese team and they said sure <laughs> so I did my first judging with cheese and that was really interesting we did it virtually of course um, and the way they did it was they they have everyone in a pod they call it so you have a group of three or four people that you're judging with and we're all over zoom with our cheeses and you know we cut the cheese open. You don't just get a slice of cheese. You get like a, a big wedge or a whole round because they want to look at the integrity of the cheese, mm -hmm. look at it, smell it, taste it, um, you know, and then discuss it, really have a discussion around it, um, which is different. Good Food Awards, different categories, they judge differently. But with this, we really did a lot of discussion of what did we think they, the cheesemaker did right? What did they not do right? Um, you know, and then we each came up with our own our own score for the cheeses. Mm -hmm. um, so that was a lot of fun. And I ended up with a lot of extra <laughs> cheese in my house to <laughs> give to friends and uh -huh. relatives. How many um, did you judge? How many did how many cheeses did you end up tasting? I was between 30 and 40. It wasn't 40, but it was over 30. Wow. It was a lot of cheese. That's a lot. That's a lot of cheese. And combination, it was like cow, goat, and sheep. Yeah. That what the way they do it. The Good Food Awards does everything regionally. So they want to have winners from every region of the country. So um, you are judging the cheeses of a region and coming up with the best of that region um, with the idea of just sort of encouraging more producers to do everything the, the right way. Mm. You know, use the best quality ingredients, not take any shortcuts. And they have all these rules around 
what kinds of cheeses are acceptable, um, you know, what they can and can't do when it comes to cheese making. Um, what, so that was a lot of fun. What region did you get? I had the central region. Okay. Um, oh, well, yeah. So yeah. The mid I had the Midwest. Mm -hmm. um, and I, there were a few cheeses that really stood out to me. And um, I kind of guessed what one of the cheeses was and oh. um, then did an interview with the cheesemaker. By the way, did, was it possible that you submitted cheeses this year? Just, yes, <laughs> did, so. That's yeah. awesome. I was a pickle judge one year. Um, it was so fun. And we had Sarah on a few weeks ago and so awesome. You know, I just love what they're doing with that whole thing. And I think, um, you know, it's so neat for people that are just starting or, or even that are just doing it for a while and they just need that uh, recognition that they are doing it right and consistent for all these years and they just keep doing it. Yeah, I've never yeah. submitted our jams or anything to that because I just think they have too much sugar in them. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think some of those, um, some of the products are, I don't know what to say, maybe niche products. I mean, their production is not very great and um, it's just, it's difficult. I mean, I in the beginning I was judging the confections category and I really had some misgivings about it because, you know, they didn't want people using gly glucose, for example. Well, try making really high quality candy with no glucose. Yeah. I mean, there are reasons why these, these ingredients are used and they're used in really small amounts. But um, if you've ever had the nastiness that is raw chocolate, I mean, I understand not wanting to over-process things, but certain things need sugar. They need processing. Um, you know, it's what makes food edible and delicious is um, what we do to it, not just leaving it in its raw form, um, despite what a lot of raw food enthusiasts will tell you. <laughs> right, right. What about, um, did you also, were you a judge at IACP on the Cookbook Awards? You must have been. I have in the past. I have in the past. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's I didn't... how I got most of my cookbooks, uh, doing <laughs> that, which was very helpful. <laughs> it is quite, it is quite overwhelming when those books start to show up in the mail. You, you yeah. end up with, I, I think it was like 40 to 50 books in, the, in yeah. the category that I judged. And so some of them I kept, some of them I, you know, exchanged at a bookstore for other books. But yeah. um, my, my, I will admit my, much of my apartment is unlivable because it's just stacks of books <laughs> everywhere. Um, I know, I just, I, you can't really see, but I just redid my office because, and I moved a bunch of books in here, but my kitchen bookshelves, it's just, they're, they're everywhere. And I was thinking like, how often do I actually pull these out and read them? Like never. It's like almost like the first time I get the book, you know, and scour through it and read and, you know, go, oh, that would be great to make that pretzel roll recipe one day and then I'm like oh shoot there's that recipe again I it's amazing but it's a, it's an addiction I think it's really hard because the new ones come out and you there's always something you want you know yeah. and it, I find it very hard to part with the old ones I mean I use books a lot for research when I'm writing articles and for experts and um it's just it's very hard for me to part with books it's really really hard and I have just an old old 1920s style apartment it just doesn't have it it was not intended for anyone with either clothing really or books i mean people just live That's very awesome. very differently so yeah it's it, there's a there's bay windows i mean there's not even really walls <laughs> as many book shelves as i need so like i said just kind of these stacks everywhere um but so it is you what it is yeah, do you, did you know that when the first fires happened that we did this, um, we ended up doing the delicious, I can't even remember what we did, but anyway, we collected yeah. books. We had over 10,000 books that were donated. And then um, we probably, people came and took about 7,500 of those books in that day 
and then um, we get, we had like the mobile bookstore come and we sent a bunch to different schools and um, it was amazing, but people are, and I guess I heard Cindy Paulson just lost her collection. Yeah, she had a 3000 book collection just and many of them that were either first editions or, you know, signed personally yeah. to her. Uh, really, really heartbreaking. So um, there's been a drive. People have been sending her books. Oh, um, I didn't know that because I remember yeah. when Matthew from SBQR, he lost his book collection. Right, right. I That's remember right. sending him books, but um, yeah. oh, I didn't realize they were doing that. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. look into that yeah. yeah I think Carolyn Young wrote a piece she wrote a piece of first about her losing them and then she wrote a second piece um about oh, her right. um, yeah her getting them back again about the you know the number of people that had sent her books I don't think she's gotten 3,000 but she's oh, certainly gotten you know a good amount a, a good a, a good number of them back but I know what you mean it's it's um it's kind of a tricky thing um I am trying harder to utilize my cookbooks. I'm finding that publishers are now sending digital versions. And I've gotten so in the habit of searching for recipes online that it's great to have the digital versions because then I'll just kind of poke through the digital versions and search for, you know, an ingredient. Oh, I have a lot of cauliflower. What should I do with it? Right. Um, and and I, I try to make, you know, two, three recipes from, from a book. And I'm not a great user, I guess, because sometimes I just, um, you know, sometimes I'm just really following my own instincts and just using the recipe as a starting point. So if I say I really like something, it was my version of it. It wasn't necessarily right. even what the, the, no. the cookbook came up with. So, um, but I do like that inspiration to kind of keep, keep things fresh for me um, and come up with different ideas and combinations and things. And um, I've actually I don't know why I'm doing this, but since the <laughs> lockdown, I have written down every single thing that I've cooked for dinner. Wow, <laughs> that's the, well, that has the potential for a really cool couple articles. Can't get it in one article. I think that's awesome. Yeah. I don't even know why I did it. I just started to do it. I, one thing that I did was I make a list of the ingredients that I have um, especially the fresh ingredients. So I know what vegetables I have and what I have to use up and what I should use more quickly. Um, and then I have a huge pantry with a million things, but especially with the produce, I, I was getting a, um, a, and I still am getting from time to time, a produce box from uh, Tomatero Farms. And it would have 10 different items in it. So I would just make a list of the items so that I could kind of glance at it and just remind myself, oh yeah, you still have some romantico <laughs> or you still have some charge you have to use up. And then oh, just kind of let myself think about, well, how do I, how do I usually cook this ingredient? And then how, what do I want to do with it this time? Because I think, I think I have this theory that we all have like two or three recipes for everything that we like carrots. There are two or three things you probably always do with carrots, right. but there might not be more than three things that you do with carrots. You know, like carrot centric. I'm not saying carrots as an ingredient in a recipe, but like when you have too many carrots and you wanna make something where carrots are kind of the, the star, mm -hmm. maybe you have a carrot salad and a carrot soup. And those are right. kind of like, right. you know, when a glazed carrot yeah. thing and, and that's it. But yeah. you don't have like a hundred ideas for what to do with carrots. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I make Swiss chard goes really well with fish. And in Italy, they eat Swiss chard with fish. Always they like that combination. So I just am in the habit, oh, when I have Swiss chard, I have fish. Uh. Well, I found this great Turkish recipe that I've now made twice and I will undoubtedly make again for stuffed Swiss chard leaves. Super easy, super delicious, super economical, just a really great recipe. So it's helpful to sort of, you know, do that poking around of what else could I do with chard and then hold on to the recipe when it's something good so that I can actually go back to it. Because so often I, I make things and then I'm like, where did I get the recipe? Yeah. Where did I get the idea from that? I don't even remember. So having a place where it's all kept makes it, if, if I do want to repeat something, makes it much easier to go back and be like, okay, well, that time I did that meatball thing, where did I actually find the original <laughs> right. recipe for it? 
So the people back East um, have eat your books or eat my books. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. And just for listeners, I mean, if you go on, you can get a subscription and you can log in all the books that you own and they pretty much have every book, you know, to date pretty much in their database but they don't give all the recipes, which is very much appreciated, especially to people that's, you know, have spent so much time doing a cookbook. Um, but you can go in and say, in your library, say, I have carrots, you know, what should I make? And it'll pull up like every recipe in your collection of books that has carrots in it as a main ingredient. And then it'll give you a shopping list, but it, but more important, it tells you what book it came from. So if you actually know where your books are, mine aren't organized by category, except for my bar books, um, you know, you can go, which I think was incredible. I mean, it was just such a wonderful, um you know it's like a cookbook library but you get your own and you know I think now you can they must get affiliate now where you can link through and actually buy books I think that I haven't been on it in a while but I would hope that they've done that because that could be a nice income stream you know getting people to see other books that are just coming out but yeah yeah they do a ton of reviews of new books too Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah. it's it's just it's a yeah, it's a different way of cooking and um, it's backwards. It is kind of backwards, but yeah. um, I also try to put like sticky notes when I have a hard cookbook, put sticky mm-hmm. notes on the recipes, flag them um, mm-hmm. because it is so easy to get a cookbook and just not ever cook anything from it really. Uh-oh. Just kind of look at it and be inspired by it, but not actually say, I am going to make that recipe right. and have the ingredients and, and really do it. Well, you know, you give so much, you're giving so much trust to the person that wrote that recipe, because, you know, especially depending what the ingredients are, you go out and you buy things. And, you know, if you're following a recipe and not just kind of turning it into your own, you're really believing that that person really knows how to cook and they really wrote a good recipe and it's going to be perfect. And hopefully you're going to love it. And, you know, I think, economics and money are probably a reason, you know, not mainstream don't cook out of cookbooks because you need too much or you're really kind of letting, you know, giving your, I don't know, letting someone else do that. Um, Well, I hate, I hate to say this too, but the truth is a lot of cookbooks are not that good. (laughs) You know, I mean, you and I know just from the experience of cooking, when we look at a recipe, we go, oh, temperature too high. Oh, that's yeah. cooked for too long. Or, oh, that's not cooked long enough. Mm-hmm. Oh, that chef has got a stove that I don't have. You know, it doesn't take five minutes to caramelize onions. Yeah. So, you know, we look at these things and we know, but most people, I don't think, know. They just follow the instructions. And if you follow the instructions and a recipe disappoints you, it's, you know, it's, yeah. not, it's not such a good experience. It's very rare to have cookbook authors where it's just absolutely positively, you will not fail with their recipes. Right. Um, very, very few cookbook authors. It's a, an incredible skill to be able to come up with a recipe that absolutely can be repeated without flaw if you follow the instructions. Um, because there's just, there's so many little things that, that Different. impact the timing and the Type temperatures and, yeah yeah the size of the pot that you're using I mean I look at the comments a lot of times and I, yeah. I can sometimes you know figure out what they did wrong like oh they used yeah. a, a really small pot and that's why it took so much longer to cook or mm-hmm. um, because there's so many things you have to specify that we as people who cook a lot it's second nature to us but for people who don't cook a lot it's not second nature to them no. um, they don't necessarily you know they don't know what season to taste is that's a big you know big issue with the seasoning to taste yeah. they, they don't know what season to taste is and nothing can ruin a recipe faster than not seasoning properly Right. But how do you how do you tell people? Yeah. Um, Diane Jacob wrote a piece just recently about kind of like 
you need to tell people, start with a teaspoon of salt and then taste it and decide if you want more. But you have to give them a baseline. You can't just say season yeah. to taste because people don't know what that means. They don't know whether that means a pinch or a teaspoon or a tablespoon. Right. Um, and I, 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 I think do. she's right. I think she's really right. We have to give people like more clear instructions, not assume that they know what they're doing because a lot of people don't. Right. I would definitely do things differently. I mean, there were a lot of differences from the book in 04 and then the second book. We used the same editor on both, though Simon & Schuster did one and then we self-published the second one. But just, I think, you know, as you continue to learn, you go, oh, I wish I did that. I wish I did that. But I have to say the nicest compliment that I got this week was from two, two different high school girlfriends, like my best high school girlfriends. One sent me a video of them having our butternut squash soup with Thanksgiving last year. And then another one said this year, thanks son, we're cooking the butternut squash soup from the book again. Yeah. Nicest thing. I, I don't remember how we did. John figured out all those recipes. I have no idea <laughs> how, you know, I don't yeah. think I've ever made it at home, but you know, those are the things where people kind of create their own traditions around certain recipes and, you know, kind of in an arsenal, what do you need? You know, a couple dozen really solid things that, you know, bring back memories and think about your grandparents. Um, I get the New York Times cooking email every week. Me too. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's like, what is it? $4.95 a month or something. I don't even know, but I I'm impressed with, is it Sam Sifton who edits yeah. that? Yeah, he's impressive because yeah. the amount of recipes he puts in that is, I think, on Sunday or Monday or every day. I don't know. I'm like, how could you have this much time to <laughs> test all these recipes and then recommend them to your yeah. 20 million, you know, subscribers? Yeah, it's incredible that I have to say the the, the New York Times one and voraciously the one from the Washington Post mm -hmm. fantastic yeah, I, I look at them every week and I'm inspired by them I go oh that's an interesting idea mm -hmm. um you know and it, it it really does kind of jumpstart my thinking and my creativity for the week mm -hmm. um they do such a good job with them such a such I a say today, yeah I saved a recipe this morning actually from the times it was a slow cooked chicken in salsa verde and they're using canned salt, it's like a can or a jar salsa verde in it. And I love the comments too, because like the first comment on there was like, oh God, here's an easy salsa verde recipe. You'll never go wrong with it. And it takes five minutes, you know, yeah. Just, you know, like, do you buy it? And, you know, no, you get to make it, but I, I save it. I don't know that I ever go back and make them, but I keep saving things. <laughs> I do. Well, that's how I kind of, you know, I have my list of ingredients and then I look at these things and then I'll take the recipe. I use those recipe box functions, but I'll also just make a link and I sort of have a list underneath the ingredients of things I'm thinking about making and mm. some things I make and some things I don't but you know and some things I, I think I want to make and then I lose interest and I delete them mm -hmm. um but it does You're sort a of writer. Easier. yeah it, it's just it's sort of an organizational tool it just helps me to organize um and when I see something that I'm excited about and I think oh well that looks really good there was this Russian apple cake recipe that was in the um Washington Post. And it just looks super, super easy. And I'm a super lazy baker. So no sifting, sifting not going to happen. Uh, <laughs> you know, mix in three portions. Yeah, dump and mix not happening in three, you know, not happening. And I followed this recipe. I, I, I took shortcuts here and there. And it was so good. And I like make oh. it made it the next week. It's you can make it in the food processor. It takes about maybe 10 minutes to gather all the ingredients and five minutes to make. Wow. And it, and it is so delicious. It's just uh -huh. this really, really easy. And there's no beating egg whites. That's another one of my pet peeves. Like uh -huh. I'm not beating egg whites. My, my, <laughs> my life is, I have too much important things I have to do to spend time beating egg whites. Someone else can beat egg whites. Exactly. Um, 
you know, and this, you just beat the eggs together. You don't mm-hmm. have to beat the whites and the yolks separately for a cake. And it comes out, the texture comes out amazing. So yeah, it's, it's, um, it's very gratifying to have those new recipes that you're like, I'm coming back to this one. Mm-hmm. The, um, oh shoot, it just lost my train of thought. Uh, <laughs> I hate when that happens. I was just going to ask you, um, what, what, um, what tool, like, what do you write? Are you always typing in the computer? Do you have a notebook by your side? I do. I, you know, back when I, in the before times, I used to take a notebook with (laughs) me everywhere and actually Uh write in a notebook. Um, Sometimes when I'm having an interview, I'll be writing off to the side and not typing, I'll be taking notes. Um, sometimes I'm, I'm recording the interview, um, but I compose at the, at the computer. I'm pretty comfortable mm-hmm. with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was just thinking about how many notebooks that I keep filling up and then I can't find oh. what I wrote about. Yeah, I try, to, I try to transfer the notes as quickly uh-huh. as I can yeah. um, because you're right. And then you'll, you'll lose the ones that you need and, it's, mm-hmm. it's really, yeah, it, the notebooks are, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it can be trouble, um, but, it, but it's good to have a notebook with you to take mm-hmm. notes and to um, have a way of doing that. I, I like I say, I, I record sometimes with the mm-hmm. phone, you can just record, you can record an mm-hmm. interview or taking photos of things. So mm-hmm. um, I try to rely less on notebooks, but especially if you're at an event or something, it just may be easier just to take notes. Yeah. What, one of my last questions is um, for someone that, you know, is, is young or well, or old or whatever, um, and is thinking about wanting to be a food writer. um, What kind couple advice things would you have for them before they, before they either quit writing or um, I don't know. Well, I think you have to decide, are you going to do this for fun or are are you going to do this as a career? Because there are tons of opportunities to write for the fun of it and just to enjoy it and have it be something that um, gives you pleasure in life versus is this something I really want to do to make a living? Because in order to do the kind of writing that you have that makes you money you know you're going to end up writing stories you're going to end up writing things that you're not as gung-ho about you know i mean i've written a lot of website copy i've written product descriptions um it that pays the bills you know i sometimes these stories you put your heart and soul into you know you're not making very much money it's it's not really a sustaining thing so you have to you know it's sort of like the best way to ruin something you love is by making it work, right? Um, so if you love to cook, um, there's nothing like becoming a chef to sort of make it seem <laughs> like work. Yeah. Take the joy out of it. I mean, I used to ask, I used to ask the stupidest questions when I interviewed chefs. I used to say, what do you like to cook on your day off? And they'd look at me like I was totally insane. I'm not cooking. Like, Why would I ever cook on my day off? Like, that's ridiculous. I have no one behind me to clean up and right. I don't have all the ingredients. And, and I, I, that's the last thing I want to do is cook on my day off. So I think you have to kind of decide from the outset, um, is this going to be something that I'm doing for fun? In which case, you know, keep a blog, write for outlets that, um, you know, are aligned with the kind of writing that you want to do and the passion that you have, and don't worry about the money. And then if you want to make money, um, you have to go where the money is, honestly. I mean, you have to find out the things that, that do pay and put some of your energy into that because just writing the stuff that you love, very few people can really mm-hmm. um, make a go of it that way. It's travel writing's the same thing. Like it just doesn't, everyone wants to do it. It's fun, right? But right. it doesn't, it doesn't pay. I mean, to, to make a living as a travel writer is just a crazy, crazy thing. Yeah. Um, and you do end up having to write for, you know, corporate brands, you know, uh, big hotel chains or airlines or whatever, because they're the ones with real budgets. Right. I was thinking that influencers are the new bloggers. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, the it's, and, you know, I don't think of myself as an influencer because I don't have a huge, fo- I have a lot of people on Twitter, but I don't have a huge following on Instagram. But now there's this whole thing called micro influencers, which is basically if you have really good engagement, even right. if your following isn't 
huge. That's what some of these brands really actually care about. Do you right. have sort of a core group of people that really engage with your content? Right. So, so yeah, it's, it's interesting. Yeah. I mean, the first time I went to an event and I'm taking notes and pictures and the Instagrammers and influencers, they're just looking for the one shot and they don't, they don't even want to hear what anyone has to say. Right. They, they, don't, they don't care. Was, right. um, it was, it was eye opening to me. <laughs> they got a gorgeous shot, you know, they got yeah. a gorgeous shot. But I just think, wow, that's a totally different kind of work from what I'm doing, asking, asking 50 million questions and taking notes and, you yeah. know, doing but research it's, and it's very like, different. one good shot. Yes, it's for different eyeballs too, you know, for sure. uh, not, not, not yeah. my age anyway. What, um, what, how should people look if they want to do it for money? Do people pay by the word, by the story, all, you know, by yeah, the cover, they, all yeah. the Some of it is by the word, some of it is by the story. Um, you know, it's, it's content, um, creating content. So mm -hmm. looking at content strategy and content creators, and um, there are some platforms that are used um, out there for writing, um, mm -hmm. Skyward and Contently and those kinds of things. I mean, I would say the, the best resource is really Diane Jacob, who's yes. made sort of a career out of helping people figure mm -hmm. out what they wanna do with their food writing mm -hmm. careers, whether it's cookbooks or, podcasts or TV or whatever it is that they want it or writing articles, whatever it is they want to do. Mm -hmm. So I would say make that, you know, we'll write for food. It's her yeah. classic, I don't know, third, yeah. it's in its third or fourth edition at this point book. Yeah. So you, you need that as your go-to and just her website and her newsletter. I think, you know, that will, that will start you on the right path in any case. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you. I mean, is there anything we didn't get to cover that you want our listeners <laughs> to know? Um, I would just say, if you're interested in cheese, come visit us at The Cheese Professor. We have a weekly newsletter that goes out. Um, there's no advertising. We don't share it with anyone. It's just a few headlines, a little sneak peek at what's coming. And um, yeah, just- and we'll uh, list all the websites on the show sure. notes. Yeah. Sure, I can give you links to those. And I hope everybody just stays safe and healthy and you know enjoys the comfort and the joy that cooking brings them. Um, because I think if, if there's a positive coming out of this year, it's people um, discovering the joy of cooking and how pleasurable it can be to um, to, to really be more engaged with food and more involved with finding great, finding great ingredients and learning how to cook them and enjoying the fruits of your labor. It's, it's such a satisfying thing. If, if, it, if this is what it took to get a few more people to do it, then yeah. so be it. <laughs> it's good. Yeah, we've, we've got a, a million more bread makers than we did in <laughs> Right, sourdough and kimchi and all those things. Mm -hmm. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We're we're in the same boat here at my house, and my daughter started baking oh, a lot more wow. than she did before. That's and great. You can tell, yeah, our, Life our, skills. <laughs> I, it's it's amazing, and and our cookbooks actually have three categories. It's the ones that are on the shelf in the garage. Um, those <laughs> ones are the ones that we you know you need to go to because you remember a specific thing. There's the coffee table books that have very pretty pictures that you just sort of leave out because they make you salivate looking at the photos. And then there's the ones that are actually live in the kitchen that have sticky pages sure. and they're, yeah. they've got egg egg wash on them or something. <laughs> um, so, and those are the ones, you know, our total go-tos. And I will say that for, uh, you know, for those um, that are a little more visual, America's Test Kitchen is like my favorite show on television um, because they, they just go through the science of everything and they perfect recipes. And a lot of it is getting um, things to be more efficient where you can use some of those recipes that are in these cookbooks, but then they'll tell you, oh, well, you can actually use this or use that and make it um, sort of um, accident free. <laughs> um, and Amy, can you tell us, um, just so people can follow you on Instagram, what the uh, what your um, um, Insta, Insta feed is? Sure, everything for me is cooking with Amy. So back to my blog name. So you'll find that Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all of those places, and um, LinkedIn, everywhere. <laughs> I'm okay. everywhere. So yeah, cooking with Amy, and feel free to follow me. And like I say, come come check us out over on uh, on um, uh, the Cheese Professor because we have a lot of really interesting. For anyone who loves cheese, it's just a great place to come. 
Yeah, awesome. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. Let's chat again soon. Yeah. All right. For those of you out there, we appreciate you listening. If you want to check out some of our past episodes, I encourage you to go to thebikegoeson.com. We've got a lot of information there. You can also hit up Radio Misfits or on all your social media platforms. Sandra? Brian? What's your favorite cookbook out there, you think? Uh, mine? My your favorite? Own, your own, your no, own no, 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 no. Um, I have to think about that. But the one thing I, I wanted to say is I did just, there was an article by a food writer who is like, has to write every day. She just did a article on the New Yorker said, I don't want to cook anymore. I am so sick of cooking. Um, it was really funny. So I guess it depends where you start from, yeah. you know, and where your passion is um, on this. What's your favorite cookbook? You know who I really like is Jamie Oliver. Yeah. The, yeah. There's something about his style of cooking. It's very simple. Uh, it's quick. It's mm -hmm. fresh. It's clean. And the recipes seem to work. Mm -hmm. uh, that, so any of the yeah. Jamie Oliver cookbooks, I, I like the way that he likes to use, you know, four ingredients or, you know, right. five ingredients and, and makes amazing meals just using. And I love the way he doesn't call arugula arugula, that he calls it rocket. Rocket. Yeah, I don't know if it's the same thing, but I always was confused by that. I never understood what it was. And then, um, yeah. yeah. Anyway, all right. Very fun. Very fun. She's smart. Yeah, for sure. And I can't wait to visit the alcohol uh, website because mm. I mean, talk about a lifetime of I mean, food and I know food's the same way, but yeah. you can just do Japanese whiskey, grappa, dip, yeah. wine. I mean, it's mm -hmm. endless, completely endless. Yeah. All right. We'll look forward to talking to you next week. Thank you all out there. If you have any suggestions for some of our guests, drop us a line uh, at thebikewasown.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you.